Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the vault for a classic episode of the show. This one originally aired on February 11th, 2020, and this is part two of our two-part series on the eruption of Vesuvius. Yeah, this one's this one's a lot of fun. Volcanoes, history, uh, geology. Uh, the, the, yeah, this is the second part. So if you didn't listen to the first one, go back and listen to that one first. But let's go ahead and dive right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back following up our last episode about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Uh, You know, Robert, this is something that I have wanted to do an episode about for a long time. I think it was mainly just because I I love those letters of Pliny's, and I wanted Mm -hmm. to read them and talk about them. But there was a reason that we just recently decided, okay, it's time to do Vesuvius. And it was because of a new study I read about that set the lava of my heart flowing in and so here we are. Because a lot of the, the really great and shocking research about uh, Vesuvius is like basically what happened to people's bodies when uh, when the volcano erupted. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I mentioned in the first episode how I how much how clearly I remember looking through a National Geographic when I was a, a child and and seeing these images of the remains of uh, in Pompeii and uh, Herculaneum. Uh, one in particular I remember was a, a photograph of. Uh, this one uh, bit of human remains that are referred to as ring lady uh, because it is the skeleton and uh, you see uh, the, these uh, these rings uh, there and it's just like the skeleton emerging from the uh, you know half half uh, revealed in the uh, in the ashen soil and it was just you know, very haunting and it's this idea of this place just buried and frozen in time. I'm looking at this image. Does she have rings on her fingers, but also bigger rings down around her, like her elbow? Yes, I believe so. And I think uh, now the photo I included in our notes is, is rather small, but I believe they are serpents too. They're like, mm. uh, you know, um, precious metal serpents. Uh, so, you know, the, all these little details like that, uh, you know, always were just very intriguing. I mean, such a dramatic moment in history and then to have so much of it preserved. Yeah, in some cases preserved in a shockingly pristine way, but in other cases transformed in an even more shocking way. So this new study that uh, that I was reading about was by Pierpaolo Petrone, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine just this month or just last month in January of 2020. Uh, actually, so Petrone was the f- lead author, but there were a bunch of authors named on mm-hmm. it. And I'm not going to say the name of the study because that might spoil a little bit about what happened. But basically, there have been a lot of modern analyses trying to understand exactly what happened to the bodies of the victims of Vesuvius in settlements like Pompeii and Herculaneum. Yeah, it's so like some of the the, uh, the ones people are most familiar with are when uh, essentially the uh, like the the, the the ashes that formed around a body have been used as a kind of mold. Yes, uh, to, you know, pour a substance down in there, uh, let it uh, uh, you know um, harden, and then when you uh, bring it back out, you have this this picture of these these humans from seventy nine CE at the basically the moment of death. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, these people died under circumstances so extreme that it's difficult to imagine exactly how it would play out on our soft, fluid-filled bodies. Um, This particular study concerns one such case, which got a good write-up in the New York Times by Jennifer Pinkowski. Uh, So this study looked at one specific body exhumed from the buried ruins of Herculaneum, and this was a man who was believed to have been in his mid-20s, and he was found lying on a wooden bed in the Collegium Augustalium, which was a building on the main street of the town away from the waterfront and the man's ash entombed remains were discovered sometime in the 1960s but more recently researchers were able to extract a strange object from inside the dead man's head and it is a warped black shiny fragment of glassy material what is it well, I mean, if, if if one were to to guess, you might think, well, this must be a a piece of um, you know volcanic shrapnel, something that uh, is, you know flying through the air and become it gets embedded in the skull, right? Sure. And when I was looking at images of the fragment, I was thinking exactly along those lines because it reminded me a bit of the appearance of tektites, which are these gravel-sized pieces of natural glass that are formed from terrestrial material, including things like sand, uh, which get rapidly superheated to the melting point during. Me- 
meteorite impacts. So like, you know, a, a, a meteor hits the surface, it kicks up a lot of stuff as some of it quickly melts and turns into glass. And natural impact glass is amazing. I think we talked about it a bit in our episode about the Kaaba. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But, uh, but yeah, just to imagine that, like an object falling from space hits the surface of the earth, throws up this big explosion of debris, and some of that debris gets so hot from the impact it turns into a shower of glass. So anyway, uh, the, the images of this object extracted from the man's head look kind of like tektites or kind of like obsidian, but it also has this crazy complicated shape and texture with these sharp hooks and crags and little rounded divots as if created by frozen bubbles. And so anyway, the authors of this study believe the evidence tells us what the glassy material is. It's vitrified brain tissue. Wow. Human brain turned into glass, hence the name of the study heat-induced brain vitrification from the Vesuvius eruption in CE-79. Uh, and as summarized in Pinkowski's article, according to Pierpaolo Petrone, who is a forensic anthropologist at the University Federico II of Naples and the first author on the study again, the man's brain, quote, turned to glass as a result of high heat from the pyroclastic flow and the victim's skull exploded. Now, this is not actually the first case of research indicating that heat from the volcanic eruption caused people's heads to explode. That That's something that had been uh, established by some previous research. Right. In fact, one of the uh, older episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I think titled Stuff That Will Literally Blow Your Mind. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, that's one of the things we mentioned as being something that could actually make your 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 head pop uh, would be uh, becoming caught in, say, a pyroclastic flow like this. Yeah. Uh, not not to be too grim, but I mean, I, I think of the comparison to like when we've discussed our problems, microwaving butter, yeah. where there's like too much vapor formation very rapidly. Yeah, ra- it, yeah, yeah, rapid temperature change like that. Yeah. So to quote some text from the study itself, and th- this was uh, quoted secondarily from the BBC, quote, the detection of glassy material from the victim's head of proteins expressed in the human brain and of fatty acids found in human hair indicates the thermally induced preservation of vitrified human brain tissue. So first you'd have extreme radiant heat, which would pretty much instantly ignite fat in the body and vaporize fluid content in body tissues. Uh, what kind of heat are we talking about? Well, analysis of the charred wood nearby uh, shows temperatures right around the man probably reached to something like 520 degrees Celsius, which is over 960 degrees Fahrenheit, which I believe is hotter than the average surface temperature on the planet Venus. Uh, so we're, we're in extreme territory here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and though I, I should say that not all experts are convinced that the black glass is truly the man's brain because Pinkowski – uh, in her article for the Times, also quotes somebody named Christina Kilgrove, who is a bioarchaeologist at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, who's done firsthand research on Vesuvius and of the brain to glass studies. She says, "Quote: While their analysis is intriguing, I do not think they've proved it is human brain material, nor, nor have they ruled out other origins. The fatty acids they identified are typical of vegetable or animal fat or hair. Hmm. So apparently, you know, once you start achieving temperatures." that could potentially turn all kinds of organic material into glass, you create some room for confusion. Maybe this is some kind of other organic material vitrified. Right. And, and then again, this is like a, these are special circumstances to create the, this, uh, these forensic remains. So it's difficult to compare these to other cases. Now, that's not the only study uh, to come out recently about grim death scenes in these towns. There was another one I was looking at that was revising some earlier research about how some people had died when their their remains were found within these stone houses that were along the shores at mm-hmm. Herculaneum that were sort of known as the boat houses. Uh, it appeared that people died crowded inside. I think they had probably crowded into the buildings for shelter. The buildings got closed up and then got superheated. And the question was, how did the people die inside? And again, it's a very grim scene, but it looks like it sort of turned the the buildings provided some insulation from the flow of what was happening outside, but just gradually heated up and sort of worked like an oven. It's kind of horrible to imagine. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, they, they managed to avoid like instant cooking, but instead got slightly more gradual cooking. Yeah. Hmm. 
Now, as luck would have it, there was, uh, there was another very recent uh, bit of news concerning uh, the eruption of Vesuvius. Uh, in January 2020, a number of uh, news sources ran a story about the possible discovery of Pliny the Elder's skull. What? Yes. Um, in, in one of the, the better write-ups, that, uh, the one I was looking at, in fact, was uh, Catherine J. Wu's This 2,000-Year-Old Skull May Belong to Pliny the Elder, published on Smithsonian.com. Okay, what's the case here? All right, so this this latest wrinkle in the story comes uh, via Italian researchers uh, regarding uh, one of some 70 skeletons buried together in the aftermath of the eruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this particular body that they're looking at, or really particular, particularly we're dealing with um, uh, a skull and jawbone, mm-hmm. Uh, they were found to have uh, uh, the body that it's associated with found to have heavy, heavily ornamented uh, short sword in its possession and jewels, uh, all of this becoming of a person of means, uh, perhaps they speculate a high ranking naval officer. Now, the, these uh, remains were unearthed about 100 years ago, and engineer uh, Gennaro uh, Matrone theorized that this might be plenty. Uh, but there was no way to really explore this any further. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just kind of circumstance like, hey, we found a, um, this, this body. It looks like it was somebody of, of means. Uh, the most famous person of means to have that we know died uh, in the eruption of Vesuvius is, of course, Pliny the Elder. So he thought, I think this might be him. Okay. So fast forward to the 21st century, and the skull and the jaw are now in the possession of Rome's Museum of the History of the Art of Medicine. And using DNA sequencing technology, researchers found that it was the skull of, quote, a man who could trace some of his lineage to Italy and who likely died in his 40s or 50s. Hmm. Now, Pliny would have been 56, so it's possible. The jaw, on the other hand, turned out to be uh, from a different individual of North African heritage. Okay, so it wasn't even from the same head right. as the rest of the skull. So all of this is still very uncertain. Uh, this is not a, this is not, they're not really hitting it out of the park with this one. Uh-huh. I think you can fairly say, yes, it sounds possible that this particular skull could have belonged to Pliny the Elder. But narrowing it down to just a um, you know a man who could trace some of his lineage to Italy and who likely died in his forties or fifties, I mean obviously there are going to be uh, other individuals in that category that died uh, with the eruption of Vesuvius. Yeah, this is interesting, but yeah, I'm I'm far from convinced. Uh, so w- again, to go over to the the evidence, he would have been in the right age bracket, mm-hmm. but a lot of people would have been. He would have been an Italian man, but a lot of people there would have been, and he had some. He had some possessions indicating that he was rich, right? An an ornamented sword and jewels, right? But again, so the argument is like, well, this was the the kind of stuff that you might expect to find upon a naval uh, uh, officer, uh, to to find upon uh, you know somebody like Pliny the Elder. uh But that's about as far as we can really go with it. Yeah, Uh, yeah. This reminds me of other cases where we've talked about on the show before where people kind of like you're so eager to take one fact or character or place from a historical narrative and try to connect it with physical artifacts on on often a very tenuous basis. Like mm-hmm. I remember in our episode about Lot's wife uh, where we discussed the Dead Sea region and the tendency to take a rock or salt formation and, and people would say that's Lot's wife. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, like even so even if you were someone who believed the you know, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah story as as history and believe the whole Lot's wife thing. Why would you expect an individual rock you come across to actually be her? Right. Yeah. The idea is, is of course, endlessly attractive yeah. to be able to to have this physical proof of Pliny the Elder, an individual who factors so heavily into this particular historical narrative, but also is just such an uh, an important figure in the you know the historical writings. Yeah, I, I think it speaks to a kind of human tendency of like. The characters we know from literary sources, whether it's history or mythology, they're like friends. And, mm-hmm. you know, the same way that you walk through a crowd and you yearn to recognize people you know, you see somebody and like, oh, is that Jeff? Oh, no, mm-hmm. it's not him. But <laughs> your, your brain went there for a second. Yeah, it's like, is that Plenty Skull? Oh, wait, well, it, it might be somebody else. Yeah. But still, it feels, it feels special for a second there. Yeah, it does. So I guess I'd say the evidence here, not even close to decisive, but if you want to imagine maybe it's Pliny Skull, I guess there's no harm in that. Right. And now, and on the same hand, I don't want to criticize this more recent research because oh, sure, yeah. clearly they were they were following up on this much earlier speculation right? Uh, where this guy's like, I think it's Pliny. And they said, well, let's, let's 
apply some science to this. Let's look sure, at the, yeah. uh, what we can uh, we can discern from the bone uh, of the skull itself. And yeah, this is what they, they figured out. Yeah, you can find out more that's either consistent or not consistent with what somebody has already claimed. Right. Yeah. And if they'd found that it was, you know, the skull of a of a woman in her 80s, then it probably wouldn't have been plenty. Right. Or if the, the, the entire, uh, like the skull and the jawbone had both uh, turned out to have North African origin, that would have also uh, uh, been a firmer no. Yeah. So instead, we just have uh, a lingering maybe. All right. On that note, we're going to take the possible skull of Pliny the Elder, and we're going to place it up on the shelf, and we're going to— drink coffee from it. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And we are going to take a quick break. Uh, But we will be right back, and we will continue to discuss the lessons of Vesuvius. All right. We're back. So there are all these genres of things that archaeologists have uncovered at uh, at the, the the settlements that were ruined by the eruption of Vesuvius, especially like Pompeii and Herculaneum. And uh, there's no way for us to talk about all of the discoveries. A lot of them are just things about like you know everyday Roman life, you know, yeah. the way the houses are preserved, things about how the kitchens would have run and stuff like that because you, you have all the stuff still in there. Yeah. One of the things about the past that – and then we've touched on this plenty of times before is, you know, it's the everyday stuff that is not – always preserved in, say, the history books or in, you know, re- religious art or what mm-hmm. have you. And and that's often the most interesting thing. Like, how did the common people live? How What did people eat? What did they drink? What, how healthy were they? But, like, the common information like that is not the kind of stuff that is usually thought notable to be recorded by historians of the time because common life is not interesting to them at least because it's common. It might be interesting to us for which it's unusual and unknown. Instead, the things that historians are likely to record are the unusual events, you know, the wars and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, the the dramatic moments, uh, etc. So, uh, and indeed, with uh, with Vesuvius and its eruption, like, you know, that's, we have this wonderful account that survived and provides all these these details about the this you know, the unnatural horror that befalls the the cities that uh, exist in the area surrounding the volcanic mountain but you know Pliny's not taking a lot of time to talk about what he ate for breakfast that morning right so uh, I, I think he does say his uncle had a light luncheon oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he doesn't uh, say what it was <laughs> but one of the the amazing genres of things that archaeologists have uncovered at Pompeii that uh, is definitely worth looking up if you haven't seen it is this some of the surviving original artwork, which in some cases is preserved in a strikingly vivid and colorful way. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, these are definitely worth looking up. Um, uh, and, and some of them are, you know, it's it's one of these things where it, it makes you really think about uh, try and put yourself in the shoes of the of these people who lived in 79 CE, and so there are things that make perfect sense. Like, yeah, of course you'd want to live in a, a uh, in a in a space that is uh, you know that has rich decoration, or, but then you ask, well, why this painting? <laughs> why right. this particular fresco, et cetera? Well, I'm thinking if it happened to my house and future archaeologists were digging it up, they'd be like, what does it mean that he had a, a poster for the film Attack of the Crab Monsters on his wall? Clearly. He thought it was a great film, or he he realized that giant uh, psychic crabs were were holy creatures and were to be venerated in the home as a kind of right. a, a household god. They might think this is a religious artifact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but so one of the frescoes that I wanted to talk about was something I was just reading about uh, from a site called Regio Five. Regio V. Uh, I assume that means five and not just the letter V, <laughs> uh, which is still under excavation. And this is a well-preserved fresco that appears to have been in the basement of a large building underneath a stairwell. I don't know if that contributed to how well it was preserved. It mm-hmm. might have. might have. Uh, but it depicts the end of a fight between two gladiators of fighter types that we can actually identify based on their weapons and their armor in the painting. So one is of a type known as the Mermillo and the other is a, of a type known as the Thraex or the Thracian. So I was looking these up uh, in a book called Gladiators at Pompeii by Luciana Jacobelli from 2003. And she writes uh, of the Mermelo that – so the name of the Mermelo type fighter originally comes from a marine fish, the Merma, which had uh, – an image of this fish was drawn on this type of fighter's helmet. So this 
fighter would have a very scary looking helmet, actually. So it's got a visor that closes over the face and it's got kind of a, a chain pattern, like chain link pattern across mm-hmm. the visor. Um, and then, of course, it depicts this fish. And then the the gladiator would fight bare chested or sometimes wear something known as the subla gaculum. Uh, and then he'd have his right arm protected by a, something called a manica, which I, I've seen depicted as like a kind of a sleeve of padding laced up around the right arm, which mm-hmm. was the sword arm. So you'd her- hold your short sword called a gladius in the right arm with that laced up with this padding. And then in the other hand, you would have a rectangular shield called a scutum that's about one meter high. And as we've discussed in the past, talking about gladiators on the show, uh, Roman uh, gladiatorial combat, you know, it, it, it's not unfair to compare it to the uh, film adaptation of The Running Man. No. Uh, you know, it's, there's theatrics here. Uh, there's mythic uh, symbology involved here. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's not merely there's, – there's a mix of, of function uh, but also uh, just mythic form and entertainment. Yes, and there's another element of it that uh, comes in which is just like – uh, ethnic representation. Yeah. It's like the the Romans would have some fighter types that were supposed to represent sort of like exotic foreign types of warriors mm. uh, who the, the fighters might not necessarily actually be from those regions, but say the other fighter in this, not the Mermelo, but the Thracian, you know. Yeah. So that's like a type of person. And so this is supposed to be modeled after the idea of a Thracian warrior. I'm, well, I'm not sure if it would actually in any accurate way represent what the Thracians were like. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is actually something you see reflected even in some, I think, contemporary examples, but definitely in 20th century examples of professional wrestling. Yes. Where various, uh, and, and this is something you would see in, in different parts, uh, in, in pretty much everywhere that pro wrestling was slash is popular. So talking about Mexico, Japan, the United States, mm-hmm. uh, those three anyway, you would often see depictions of other nationalities uh, in different enemy roles. And of course, you see all manner of, uh, you know, xenophobia and, uh, and, st- and racial stereotypes, uh, cultural stereotypes embodied in those forms. Yes. And, you know, a funny thing that, that I was reading about with uh, Roman gladiators that like sometimes gladiator types would go out of style as uh, as certain ethnic groups were more comprehensively incorporated into the empire. Hmm. So like earlier on, you would have a type of fighter that was basically the Gallic fighter, you know, yeah. like this is our this is our parody of the uh, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, their parody or their understanding of like the the ethnic Gaul as a warrior as Gaul, then Gaul today, modern like France basically became a more fully incorporated part of the Roman Empire. That type of fighter fell out of fashion and was replaced by uh, representations of ethnic groups that were still more considered outsiders or others. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a interesting way to think about the um, you know that space where where sport and war meet. Yeah. And, and they meet more directly in gladiatorial combat, obviously. Mm-hmm. But you see this in other types of sporting entertainment uh, out there, even like full-on team sports. Uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, instead of two nations going to war, they go to game. Uh, and that, you know, that's ultimately part of the spirit of even the Olympics, which are, again, often, uh, you know, held up as an example of nations coming together in peace. And uh, and, and I, I think certainly, uh, certainly uh, f- fulfills that uh, that need uh, for the international community, and yet at the same time, it is about my country and your country going head to head, and we're going to see which one has uh, has the right stuff to uh, to emerge victorious at the end. Yeah, but at least in the case of the Olympics, it's like people actually from the original countries coming together to compete. Mm-hmm. It would be a different thing if you were just like wherever somebody actually came from, you had them depicting a person right. from a certain country. Yeah, and then in that, you would see more of a, a parallel in say a twenty. 20th century um, uh, American professional wrestling. Yeah. Uh, so Jacob Ellie writes about this other type, the, the second type in the uh, fresco, the Thracian. Quote, the Thracian's armor included a small, strongly convex, squarish shield known as a parmula, a manica. Again, this is an armband, so like this like padding laced up around mm-hmm. the sword arm. Uh, and uh, two high leggings, often decorated up to the knee. The weapon most typical of this gladiator was a short sword, either curved or angled, called a sika. So, like, you have a little kind of curved scimitar thing. Mm. And uh, she writes that even the helmet was unusual. It would usually be decorated with this tall, decorated crest. 
Uh, so in the fresco, it's a battle scene, and it's at the end of the battle, and the Mermelo fighter stands victorious, holding his sword in his right hand and holding his shield high in his left. And the Thracian is bent over, badly wounded, bleeding from wounds on his wrist and his chest. He's disarmed. His shield is lying on the ground next to him, and he's making a sign with his left hand. And it's not clear exactly what that is, but some historians and archaeologists think that, that he's possibly appealing to the audience for mercy hmm. with this sign. And we don't know if the fight would have ended with mercy or execution. That's interesting because then, it, it then also not, not only you're wondering about what is depicted in the art, but then why is it depicted? Yeah. Like why is this image celebrated? Are we celebrating the um, uh, presumably the, the valiant um, warrior that has fallen and is, uh, is appealing for, for mercy? Like saying, mm-hmm. hey, I put up a good fight, didn't you? And, and maybe the people looking at the art can be like, yeah, even if you lose, if you put up a good fight, there's, there's grace and honor in that. Or, or yeah. is it about the other guy? Like, yeah, defeat the other uh, combatant. And at all costs, and maybe they'll beg for mercy, but you still won. Right. Is the purpose of the, the artwork to be like, look at this Thracian loser? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And according, it, it gets even more interesting because according to Massimo Osana, director general of Pompeii's archaeological park, this building was probably both a tavern and a brothel that was frequented by local gladiators. Huh. So Reggio 5 is very near to another site that's believed to have been a barracks for the fighters. So the gladiators would have had their barracks nearby. They would go for, I guess, recreation at this tavern and brothel. And inside the tavern and brothel where the gladiators go, there are scenes on the walls of gladiators killing each other. Hmm. And it's like, is that what they would have wanted to see? I, or is that I, what I, I they just had to put up with? Yeah, like who who decorated this space? I don't know. It's so interesting trying to understand what would motivate people to – to decorate buildings in certain ways in the ancient world. You, mm-hmm. Like you can't – again, the same thing we were talking about. Like like how would a, a future civilization understand the spirit with which I hang up a poster for a trashy 1950s sci-fi movie? Yeah. Like do they – like do, do they have the level of complexity in imagining my mind that says, OK, this had something to do with like love of horror movies but also a sense of irony and – you know, like, or would they just have to assume I guess this is just like – like a religious artifact or something. Yeah, yeah. There's so there's there, yeah. There's so many generalities to potentially apply to that situation, and then and, and then it's going to get you know very specific about the individual whose house it is. Uh, of course, in this case, it is a, a you know again more of a less a public space for the gladiators that are assembled there. But then you have to again question who decided that this is what should be on the wall, and then what is the intended meaning of that? Like what what are they trying to enforce or celebrate? Right. Is it valiant? Is it funny? Is it honoring them? Is it scaring them? Like, what if they put that that image up at work here? Like, yeah. what would we take away from that? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, I don't know. Are they both podcasters? So I don't, I don't know what's happening. So again, we're not going to be able to get into anywhere close to all the studies that discuss what daily life was like in Pompeii or Herculaneum uh, prior to the eruption of uh, Vesuvius in 79 CE. But, uh, but I do want to discuss just a, a few quick ones. And these are all relatively recent that shed some interesting light on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first one I want to talk about is a 2017 University of Southern Denmark study that looked at the drinking water situation for the Romans of Pompeii. And they found that while, yes, lead pipes, uh, which they used, would sometimes poison the water, uh, the issue here is they would quickly calcify. So you would only be dealing with uh, high toxicity levels after they've been initially installed. Uh, or when you've had to make some repairs. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so the lead would, from time to time, poison you. Uh, but that the uh, the toxic chemical element uh, antimony would have been more of a factor. It was mixed with the lead, and it was a more uh, it was also more common in the groundwater, as is typical of areas of volcanic activity. Hmm. So this would have, according to the researchers, quote, led to daily problems with vomiting, diarrhea, and liver and kidney damage. So, um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's horrific uh, to imagine, but, um, uh, but, but it does shed a little, a little more light. Like, what does it, what does it mean to have amazing and really advanced 
plumbing mm-hmm. in uh, in 79 CE, well, it, it, it probably meant being poisoned part of the time, especially in, in this area. Well, it makes me think, so Pompeii is basically a rich town. It's yeah. kind of a resort region. A lot of successful elites live there poisoning themselves with diarrhea pipes. And it reminds me of the raw water trend from a couple of years ago. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, like, yes. So a lot of like rich tech world kind of people decided they were going to pay $15 a gallon for untreated drinking water full of Giardia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't looked it up. Is that like, is that still a thing or did that go away? Uh, I, I hope it went away, but but I don't know. We'll have to see. Maybe we'll do an episode on that. Maybe we'll get him as a sponsor. Who knows? Um, now, a couple of other studies. Both of these other studies I'm going to talk about are University of Cincinnati studies. Um, uh, okay. There's a, a, a teams there that have, uh, have been working uh, in Pompeii, and both of them have really concerned like refuse. What we can learn, not so much from the, the artistry that has survived or the human remains that we can look at, mm-hmm. but digging around in the trash, looking in the sewer pipes, and trying to solve the riddle of, of you know what they ate what they uh, how they lived and uh, and you know how they disposed of their trash yeah so this 2012 University of Cincinnati study looked uh, at a question that has come up in archaeology concerning trash uh, in Pompeii why was there so much garbage littered among the tombs hmm. so one theory was that we saw garbage dumped in tombs and at grave sites that had been damaged by previous earthquakes in the uh, vicinity and therefore they'd been abandoned. And since this was an abandoned uh, you know, uh, grave area that wasn't used anymore, people decided, well, we'll just dump our trash here. Right. Yesteryear's graveyard is today's dump. Yeah. And we see shades of this in, in today's society, right? You have, mm-hmm. a, you have say, a, a house that's under repair uh, or it's, you know, it's, there's something, there's nobody's living there. One person dumps some garbage there and then suddenly other people are dumping old couches and what have you. And uh, there may be signs to try and prevent people from doing it. But now this is a place where garbage accumulates. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the Arlo Guthrie principle, you know, <laughs> the, the Thanksgiving Day massacre. Oh, okay. Is this from Alice's Restaurant? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah or they find, well, you find garbage somewhere, you figure that's where you put the other garbage on top. That's, yeah, well, that, that's, that's part of the human experience. Uh, however, in this particular study, uh, Allison Emerson argued that the Romans of the time, they simply had a more casual approach to trash. So she points out that there's no evidence for any kind of a centrally managed system for garbage disposal. Mm-hmm. And li- so life was probably just lived in close proximity to the refuse it created, especially in the alleys, the streets, uh, roads cemeteries and tombs as well. Plus, uh, one thing that she drives home is that tombs uh, at the time, like these were places, you didn't want your tomb just, well, today we think of, oh, where do I want to be buried? Where do I want my remains to go? I want it to be a nice, quiet place <laughs> that will occasionally be visited by children mm-hmm. uh, or families, but for the most part is just left to the squirrels and the birds. Uh, so Emerson argues that this was not the Roman way. You wanted to be remembered. Uh, so your tomb needed to be seen. Your tomb needed to be in a place that was going to be uh, highly trafficked. Uh, and so these tombs would have been high traffic spaces, which meant people would probably be littering everywhere, that they would be leaving graffiti, etc. And that was, I mean, that was just part of it. Like this is a, a, you want to be seen, you want to be remembered, you need to be in a living space. Living space means graffiti and garbage. Oh, yeah. This is common in the ancient world. It makes me think of the the Chattelhoyuk situation where people would literally bury the remains of their ancestors in the floor of the house where they lived. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to be near the living. Yeah, uh, that's that's part of the the whole equation here. Yeah, and they would often keep body parts of the like maybe keep their head covered in plaster just on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Now, another University of Cincinnati study uh, came from 2014, and this one looked specifically at the drains, cisterns, and latrines of Pompeii uh, to learn what people ate. And it's interesting. We've, we've talked about how, yes, there were definitely some very wealthy uh, members of Roman society in the area. This was a very rich uh, part of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, there were, of course, commoners. There were people lower down on the socioeconomic spectrum. And so in looking at the, the, uh, the, the, these remains, uh, the, these vestiges of, uh, of, the, of these diets, you were, they were able to find these clear socioeconomic divisions. 
So, for instance, uh, they looked at one area and they found grains uh, or they found the remnants of grains, fruits, nuts, olives, lentils, local fish, and chicken eggs, as well as minimal cuts of more expensive meat and salted fish that had been imported from Spain. Mm-hmm. And so this would have been, you know, um, this would have been the, 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 the food of, um, of people lower down on the socioeconomic spectrum. Yeah. The, the the workers throughout the city, yeah. regular people, yeah, yeah, eating you know the the staples, but then occasionally having something a little more fancy. But then, of course, there were the richer areas, uh, and here they found Im- uh, more imports from outside Italy, such as various shellfish, sea urchins, and I, I love this detail, even delicacies that included the butchered leg joint of a giraffe. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> Professor Stephen Ellis uh, points out that the bone, quote, represents the height of exotic food uh, and is underscored by the fact that uh, this is thought to be the only giraffe bone ever recorded from an archaeological excavation in Roman Italy. So as far as we know, uh, this is the only bone from a giraffe ever found in, uh, in Italy at the time, mm-hmm. and it's, in, it's underneath a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, now, some of you might be wondering, well, I, you might think to yourself, well, it wouldn't even occur to me to eat a giraffe. What uh-huh. does a giraffe taste like? Well, there's a wonderful article you should read on this. Uh, this was published in New York Magazine in February of 2014 titled, What Does Giraffe Meat Taste Like? Okay. Uh, by Adam Martin. And basically, uh, Martin says that, you know, descriptions are going to vary, but on one hand, you'll see it described as a very tender meat that is served extra rare and it kind of melts in the mouth. Uh, Other accounts have said that it's uh, an intensely flavored lean meat uh, like that of a tender horse. So like horse meat, except not as tough. Uh, And another source said that that, uh, giraffe meat was tough and chewy, but also flavorful. Now, I, I would have guessed like tough and gamey. Yeah, I mean it's a wild animal. You yeah, know, this is not like a, the the kind the breeds of cattle that are bred for meat. Yeah, yeah, I, I I felt the same. And of course, a big part of this too is like it's exotic, right? Mm-hmm. People, and this is the reason uh, why rich Romans would have potentially ordered this on a menu. It's like, what do you have? What are your specials today? Well, we have the leg of a giraffe, and uh-huh. you know, exciting. I've never had that before. I will try it, and then I'll have sunk cost on on how I <laughs> respond uh, to the taste. Exactly. Now, uh, Martin does uh, our, uh, drive home, though, that, okay, yes, there are examples of modern giraffe meat that have been obtained legally, uh, certain, like from culling efforts uh, in certain places. Mm-hmm. But, if you, but don't use this as license to go and try and obtain giraffe meat <laughs> because it's also – giraffe meat is going to bring with it a high risk of being harvested unethically. Uh-huh. So ultimately, it's not worth it because it's not – it doesn't sound like it's going to taste great. And you don't want to go around trying to order yourself up uh, a leg of giraffe for the barbecue uh, if you're going to have to contend with the fact that it it might be obtained unethically. I wonder how many pounds of meat you get out of a side of giraffe. I mean, it's it's quite a bit. This uh, this article by Martin goes into that a bit. How sometimes there are poachings. There's there, you'll see poaching of giraffes because if you land a giraffe, it's worth like. It's as much meat as you would get from, say, several, say, Impala or Gazelles or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it's going to be probably tough and weird. Yeah. Now, if you were one of those people thinking, like, it would never occur to you to eat a giraffe, I was thinking like that. This this really indicates that you do not have a Roman elite mentality <laughs> because we've discussed on the show several times uh, the Romans ate everything. You yeah. know, like, oh, look at this interesting exotic animal. Get the butcher knife. Uh, they were they were really like let's try to eat that culture, uh, and apparently another thing I was reading about is that they loved the rare delicacy of flamingo tongue. Mm-hmm. I was reading about this in Food of the Ancient World by Joan P. Alcock, where she writes, uh, "Quote: Flamingo's tongue was a great delicacy. Emperor Vitellius uh, in AD sixty nine." presented the goddess Minerva with a dish containing peacock brains, pike livers, pheasant brains, and flamingo tongues, which he afterward ate, which is great. You know, you get to <laughs> present it to Minerva and then, you know, chow down yourself because Minerva's not going to eat it. Now, I, I feel I'm of two minds on, on all of this because on one hand, yes, there are all these wonderfully, ex- really exotic sounding things that the Romans ate. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you had to decipher, like, which, which menu of possibilities is more 
exotic and, uh, you know, and, and depends on, on wider, you know, geographic sourcing. Mm-hmm. Is it this restaurant in Pompeii where the giraffe leg was, was served? Mm-hmm. Is it even the, the available menu, say, at even any given time, uh, in Rome itself? Or is it what you might get at the local Arby's. Whole Foods or Arby's <laughs> or, um, What's the, the the restaurant with the colossal menu? Cheesecake Factory. Oh, okay. you know, like like if you yeah. were to like trace the origins of all those things, yeah, yeah, and see it as see Cheesecake Factory as a restaurant of empire. Is it ultimately a larger empire by far than that of the, uh, the, the even like the the, the richest uh, table setting in the Roman Empire? Uh huh. Well, I mean, you clearly drive home that like some of our judgments about these kinds of things are completely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, about like what is an exotic extra extravagant food and what is just normal food. <laughs> right. Like, uh, the, the Roman poet Marshall was actually – he lamented the idea of eating flamingo tongues. I don't know why exactly it's the, it's what's so bad about flamingo tongues compared to the other stuff. But he was generally attacking, you know, like uh, certain Roman elites as decadent, you know, mm. decadent Epicureans or whatever. Uh, but there's this couplet that Marshall wrote that I found translated in a book called The Flamingo Smile by Stephen Jay Gould. Mm-hmm. And so Marshall wrote – my red wing gives me my name, but epicures regard my tongue as tasty. But what if my tongue could sing? Hmm. Well, I, I think it sounds like what he's getting at is is a basic truth. The flamingo is a beautiful animal that we love to look at. It is it is different from other uh, varieties of bird that we might behold, and, and that's why generally you go to a zoo. What's the first thing you see? Flamingos. They're like the, the standard greeters at at so many different uh, zoological uh, parks. I mean, flamingos are weird. But they, they are, are weird. beautiful. Like I love the way they they eat with their heads upside down. Mm-hmm. You know, in this book, Gould goes on to write about. Uh, the about how the flamingo's tongue has special texture and taste because of its unique evolutionary function that unlike most birds flamingos are actually filter feeders they're more like baleen whales mm-hmm. and they they dip their heads into the water turned down to and they they open up their mouths and they've got these little uh, the, these hair like things called lamellae and then the tongue here the part that the emperor would eat it serves as a kind of pump to like rapidly suck water in and out of the mouth through the filters and this pulls in all the you know, weird little bits and life forms that the flamingos ultimately survive based on, but that it's this strange morphology that apparently made it so delicious to uh, to Roman epicures like Vitellius. Hmm. Well, you know, it's I guess it's possible it had a, a special taste or a special texture uh, that uh, that made people want to eat it. But I, I, you get the impression that it's mostly like here is a unique animal, uh-huh. uh, serve it to me. <laughs> Well, uh, I just want to say as an addendum, Vitellius did not last long. He uh, he was only emperor for less than a year. Uh, he, he lost a power struggle to Vespasian, was dragged out of hiding by a mob of his enemies and beheaded in the streets of Rome. And uh, I attached a picture for you to look at. I don't know if you've seen this artwork, but it's called Vitellius Dragged Through the Streets of Rome by the Populace by George Rocha Gross. He looks like he's having a bad day. Yeah, yeah, that is a, yeah that's, that, that is a bad day for sure. But maybe he should have served giraffe to Minerva instead, and his luck could have changed. Well, I think even today, it would probably be just political death for most politicians to to suddenly publicly eat the tongue of a, of a flamingo uh-huh. or or eat a big chunk of giraffe. <laughs> at the Iowa State Fair, eating <laughs> fried flamingo tongue on a stick. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Well, okay, may, now I'm second guessing myself. But uh-huh. <laughs> all right, on that uh, lovely note, we will take one more break. But when we come back, we will return more specifically to volcanoes. All right, we're back. So we mentioned earlier how the slopes of Vesuvius, you know, once more are home to vineyards and and uh, in human uh, populations. The area around Vesuvius is highly urbanized today, but authorities have established a red zone, a zona rosa, uh, to be evacuated if signs indicate that an eruption is likely. Zona rosa, that sounds so nice. Yeah, I mean, or, or it sounds like um, like a horror movie, doesn't it? Uh, oh, like I guess a Dario like, Argento kind oh, of. Oh, yeah, film. that could yeah. be a giallo, like La Zona Rosa. Yeah, yeah. Now, the general consensus is that if the signs were to prevent themselves, uh, we'd have about two weeks' notice on an eruption. Uh, but there, a lot has been written about like the the actual 
uh, preparedness in place for an event like this. So Lee Marshall wrote uh, about this topic in a September 2017 um, article for The Telegraph, pointing out that, again, at the time, 700,000 people lived in this red zone of Vesuvius. And while there there was a finalized evacuation plan, and uh, it was still in the process of coming online in 2016, 2017, uh, uh, but according to, um, to one uh, Francisco Emilio Borelli, uh, Regional Council for the Green Party, quoted in a November 2019 Euronews.com article, exercises regarding evacuation were no longer being carried out. And in that article, Filippo Poltronieri pointed out that other urban areas near volcanic areas are also uh, highlighted for insufficient planning, uh, namely the island vacation destination of Ischia and uh, and also uh, Flagrian Fields, uh, mm-hmm. which is another uh, another area in that that region uh, that is known for its volcanic activity. Uh, Lee Marshall, writing at the time, pointed out, "quote The notorious SS two six eight dual carriageway between Naples and the Sorrentine." Peninsula, designed not only to relieve congestion but also provide an escape route from the volcano, is still not complete. Construction of the road started incredibly in the 80s. Whoa. So in that article, Marshall contended that the locals were more inclined to take solace in religious faith than in emergency planning. Mm. Now, this was obviously written a few years ago, and I was looking around trying to find any confirmation that uh, SS-268 has actually been completed and is, uh, you know, in operation. I couldn't find any articles about it. Uh, some of them were, you know, in, in Italian. Some were uh, translated into English. So if we have any Italian or Italian-speaking, Italian-reading uh, listeners out there who want to set the record straight, uh, we would love to hear from you. But based on – I was looking around like Google Maps. If you look at a Google Map inquiry for a route between Naples and the Sorrentine Peninsula, it initially only provides a route via uh, SS-366 and E-45 which travels right between the ocean and the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. Okay. So, like, not a good place to be. So, wait, that sounds like a roughly Herculaneum zone. Yeah, yeah. Like, an area, like yeah, you don't want to be between Vesuvius and the ocean. Yeah, this is, this is definitely in the red zone. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, the more I, when I look closely, it looked like you could actually, it would route you on uh, SS-268 if you drag the route around with hmm. your mouse cursor. So I personally cannot tell uh, to what degree like that is now a valid option to deal with evacuation. Okay, we have had an official Google Maps fail on <laughs> getting out. But, uh, so, but to whatever degree, uh, you know, this is finally in place, et cetera, like what I'm trying to, to, to drive home from uh, those articles that I, that I cited there, is that you know we still live we still have people living in high concentration in areas near active volcanoes mm-hmm. and yes even with modern science we may have again two weeks notice uh, on a, a pending eruption but that's two weeks to sometimes move a a very large number of people out of the danger zone it i mean it makes you start to wonder more broadly about like what are the kinds of risks that human settlement should be tolerant of yeah uh, because it's clear you know there are all kinds of places where there are there are different risks of natural disasters that are going to come with different severity different frequency I mean I, I don't know how exactly you compare say like densely populated areas around a volcano that you know that that sometimes will erupt hasn't had a majorly destructive eruption in a while but you know probably is at some point in the indeterminate future going to erupt again uh, and you know that would be massively destructive versus I don't know like having civilizations in like a tornado zone where yeah. each you know each tornado is it, tornadoes are going to be more regular they're going to happen every year each one is less destructive than a volcanic eruption mm-hmm. uh, but they're just coming in these constant waves and you just hope one doesn't come near your house yeah, and then yeah, to what degree are you leaning on um, emergency preparation or even again religious faith to deal with that probability? Yeah, I guess I just mean I don't know how to do the math on like, oh, yeah. you know how to compare those types of risks. Well, I mean, it, you know, a big one, of course, is, is residing in um, coastal regions that are going to be affected by hurricanes. Right. You know, and in some cases, the I've read that the, the best advice is like, well, if your home is destroyed, like, do not rebuild it. You need to move further inland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there there's a version of this for, for various different environments um, around the world. I mean, even places where the, the risk is not as 
notably catastrophic if it's just, say, in a region that is uh, highly susceptible to the ravages of drought. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it doesn't look as good on a painting, <laughs> the the drought, uh, right. uh, you know, wreaking havoc compared to that of a volcano. Uh, but still, it can be extremely deadly and has proven deadly uh, many times in the past. So Vesuvius has been described as the most densely populated area of active volcanism in the world. But here are a few others of note. Um, one is Cotopaxi, Ecuador, uh, which is uh, actually a volcano I hope to see in the uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, 300,000 people, I've also seen it listed as 325,000, uh, live relatively closely nearby. A last eruption was 2015, and it was mostly steam, uh, but it is an area of... Uh, a, a frequent discussion uh, mm-hmm. with these. And, uh, it, but on top of that, it is also supposed to be a, just a, a very beautiful uh, location. And uh, fun fact, Alexander von Humboldt attempted to climb it in 1802. Oh, okay. I must, uh, that must be described in that book about him I like. Mm-hmm. I recommended this in our summer reading many years ago, uh, The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf. Mm-hmm. Fantastic book about Alexander von Humboldt. If, if you haven't read it, you should. All right, here's another one, uh, Katla, Iceland. This is near the town of Vik, and it last erupted in 1918. Uh, Katla is even larger than Iafidjil Ajakol, which uh, disrupted European flights when it erupted in 2010. So I've been to the town of Vik. Oh, yeah? I stayed in a hotel near Vik one time, and I remember having a conversation with the guy. The, the hotel, I think, was basically this guy's house, and it's mm-hmm. sort of been expanded out to have hotel rooms in it. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I remember talking to this guy who ran the place, and he was, like, showing us a map of the area on the wall and just sort of talking about, like, you know, how, yeah, here's what happened the last time the volcano erupted, and it will erupt again at some point. I don't know. It was strange. I mean, he he must have just had a different attitude about this, a different emotional relationship to the idea of his home being destroyed by a volcano uh, because he didn't seem all that concerned about it. He was just sort of -of matter-of-factly explaining that at some point there will be a geological event that will completely destroy his home. And uh, I don't know if his matter-of-factness was just something about this guy in particular, if more people would seem more upset by the idea, or if, like, living in a place like that kind of forces you to make peace with it in a way that, I don't know, you just think, yeah, it'll happen at some point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, probably a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Uh, a few other places of note, there's um, uh, Sakurajima, Japan, near the city of Kegoshima. That's uh, 600,000 people. There's Mount Etna uh, that we mentioned earlier. Then there's also uh, Papocatapetl, uh, Mexico, and this is near Mexico City itself. Mm-hmm. And, of course, one of the big concerns with all these is not – you know, it's not necessarily – it's not only who are in the danger zone, but then having to deal with people from the danger zone. Right. Lead, refugee you know, crisis. Yeah, refugee yeah. crisis, et cetera. Now, you might be wondering, uh, you know, why do we find so many people living near some of these volcanoes? So we've already touched, you know, on the, the advantages of, say, the volcanic soil and all and uh, the geological uh, uh, advantages to some of these locations. And, you know, again, on one level, it's just part of the human experience, part of living on a volatile planet where various regions offer threats like hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, droughts, blizzards, and more. Uh-huh. Um, According to the U.S. Geological Survey, not counting ocean floor volcanoes, which are – this is where we find most of them, uh, there are 1,500 potentially active volcanoes worldwide, 500 of which have erupted during historical time. Some of these are more remote and perhaps only threaten a limited number of people, such as, say, the 200 people who live on the remote Japanese island of uh, Agoshima in the uh, Philippine Sea. It, uh, la- this particular volcano last erupted in the 18th century, killing half the population. And today, uh, people live inside the volcanic crater, depending on its uh, geothermal power. Wow. And uh, you can uh, I, you should look up a picture of this. It's spelled A-O-G-A-S-H-I. MA. And uh, yeah, some of these images, you can you see the whole volcanic island and you can pinpoint, um, you know, the signs of uh, human habitation within the crater. Wow. And again, it's just kind of a reminder of what it means to be a human in, uh, uh, you know, on a planet that is subject to, uh, to, to upheaval like this. 
And then, of course, there are the Hawaiian islands, which are, of course, products of volcanic activity. The islands themselves were created by eruptions and then ideal bays and harbors or, you know, often the remnants of the calderas. Uh, with Vesuvius, the region is beautiful and economically valuable because of the volcanic formation of the surrounding region. And on top of that, the volcanic soil, like we mentioned in the first episode, rich, ideal for orchards and vineyards, and it's a vacation destination as well. Wait, isn't like the most active volcano in the world in Hawaii? Yeah, uh, Kilauea on the Big Island is, yeah. uh, is 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 quite active. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's really it's worth looking at because there's a there was a wonderful 2018 New York Times article by Simon Romero titled Hawaii's Volcano Country, where land is cheap and the living is risky. <laughs> and I thought this this was really telling too. Again, getting that question of why do people live in close proximity to uh, to volcanoes sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, so in this particular situation, obviously. Hawaii is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love Hawaii. I have, when I've visited, um, I've been fortunate enough to visit a few times, and uh, and I always love it. I, I never want to leave when I am there. Uh, but here's the thing. There's limited land there, and the way that land is used is oftentimes controversial. On top of this, there's a severe housing shortage and very little affordable property. And, uh, you know, Romero writes that the economic factors alone have led some on the Big Island to live ever closer to the wrath of this this beautiful but active volcano. Mm -hmm. In this uh, article, which I do recommend reading in full, the author speaks with one, uh, an individual by the name of Jaris Dreaming. Um, musician, so mm-hmm. that's yeah, thus the uh, the colorful name. Uh, and he's an individual who purchased some 100 acres of land for a hundred thousand dollars. And the reason it was so cheap was because it, it's very close proximity to active lava flows. Oh. So not just the possibility of volcanic activity, but the the, the visual, like the the clear uh, volcanic activity of moving lava. Um, Another example. Oh, I just sorry. I just yeah. had a question. Mm-hmm. How does real estate law deal with lava flows that like change the outlines of land? Well, that's that's a great question. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so, like, if you, if you own land and mm-hmm. then it gets paved over by lava flows. I assume you still own, I don't know how you measure it, like roughly the same land with the same borders. What about if, so lava flows create new land going out into the ocean where it was previous, like who gets that land? Mm, I don't know. That's a a good question. I'm thinking, I'm imagining that in most of the situations that we'd be able to look at, it would not be like an individual's land. I don't know. That, uh, I don't know. Really would, don't know. would it be whoever owns the shoreline that it extends from? I guess. But then also I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that would be off limits anyway. Like you wouldn't be able to – they wouldn't let you even try to build on active lava. Um, uh, for instance, an example that Romero brings up uh, in this uh, particular article is that uh, a 1990 eruption buried 100 homes in Kalapana in, uh, in, in Hawaii on the Big Island. And today, you'll find dozens of not-to-code homes that have been built atop the same flow field. Wow. So it's, I mean, you know, this is, the place was buried. Now there is new land there. And, you know, apparently nobody's supposed to officially be living there, but the, there's available land there in a place where available land is scarce. So, of course, people are going to move there despite the risk. I mean, it's kind of like I, I think about haunted houses a lot, mm-hmm. uh, especially when uh, when topics of um, like home values come up and, and so forth, in part because I find those topics dreary and depressing and I want to retreat into fantasy. Yeah. But also I'm like, I would put up with a ghost if, you know, if it meant, uh, you know, lower, lower mortgage payments <laughs> and whatnot. I, maybe I'd even invent the idea of a ghost if it resulted in that, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so, oh, I, yeah. Can you get a discount that way? Like call up your bank and say, like, nobody told me this house was haunted. I want, <laughs> I want to reduce my mortgage. Yeah. I mean, plus the other side, uh, the other way of looking at it is that, uh, you know, a ghost is much safer than an active uh, lava flow in your backyard. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would be all for it. You know what this makes me think is uh, we could do a whole other episode sometime on the theology of volcanic eruptions. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the various uh, divine interpretations of uh, the eruptions, the mythological reasons given for the eruptions, that would be cool to get into. 
Yeah, we didn't even really touch that, did we? I think the most we did was discussing how there were stories of uh, the rumblings of Vesuvius being tied to tales oh, Hercules. of Hercules yeah. fighting you know, monsters or giants in the earth. Yeah, probably. I think that has something to do with the naming of Herculaneum. Yeah. Like the idea that it was founded by Hercules. Yeah, and yeah. of course in, uh, in uh, the culture of Hawaii, you find uh, tales of uh, of uh, Pele, uh, the, mm-hmm. the volcano deity. So uh, yeah, there, there would be a lot of rich territory to discuss there. So maybe we'll return if uh, everybody's into the topic of volcanoes. There's a lot more to discuss. There's a well, like one area I'd like to come back to potentially would be to discuss volcanic winter, uh, discuss the the year without summer. Yes, that would be a, a, I, th- I think a good one to return to. We'll be back. In the meantime, obviously- <laughs> just like the lava flows, we'll be back. Yes, they will. It's an active world. Uh, in the meantime, we would love to hear from any of you, especially you know, if you out there have, if you ha- live or have lived in an area of um, volcanic activity, uh, definitely write in and let us know what it's like. If you have, uh, if you can answer our questions about the highways uh, surrounding Vesuvius, we'd like to hear from you as well. Have you visited some of these places? Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear from you about that as well. Uh, in the meantime, also check out uh, our other episodes. You'll find them wherever you get podcasts, wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate and review. Uh, give us some stars. Subscribe. Tell a few friends. And uh, if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that should redirect you to the iHeart listing for the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.